Uh, um, so how much is that? Welcome to the podcast editor mastermind show with me, Jennifer Longworth, Brian Hensminger, Daniel Avendra, and today's special guest, Gordon Firework, the podcast lawyer. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. And if anyone has any comments while you're watching live, you can drop them in the Facebook comments. We do this every other Thursday around 10.05 p.m. Eastern time, or you can join us live and comment or just catch us on the podcast and subscribe and like and share and all that good stuff. So Gordon, the entertainment lawyer, the podcast lawyer, tell me a little bit about how you got into being a podcast lawyer. Well, I started a, well, I was a lawyer first and then I started a podcast and because I do entertainment and media law, the connection was natural and I went actually looking for the legal stuff for myself so I knew I'd be doing things right and I realized it wasn't out there. So I wrote a book and I started creating forms and templates for podcasters to use and offering services to podcasters and production podcast companies and things like that. So now here I am representing podcasters. Very good. Yeah. So I think our audience is typically more the podcast editors rather than the podcasters. And so there are some typical questions I think that we often hear from podcasters. We've got some different questions, right? So like for me, I'm always interested in making sure that I'm covered from a legal perspective, right? Like my first thought is when I, when I bring on a new client, what are the kinds of things that I might need to consider having in a contract or a service agreement or like that kind of thing? Well, I think it is important to have a service agreement between you and your clients just so that they know what they're supposed to be getting in exchange for what they pay. And you know what you're supposed to be getting in exchange for what you do. And uh, yeah, just so that the, you know, the understandings are very clear. So the obvious things are how much you get paid and what specific services you're rendering. Now, quantifying that is sometimes a challenge because sometimes it takes you hours and hours and hours to edit an episode and sometimes you can do it very quickly. I was talking to somebody earlier today who, who does it visually and spots the ums and things just on this waveform doesn't even bother to listen through. <laughs> I mean, listens after the fact, but just, you know, if you have a known quantity of a host, I guess you can sort of figure out when there's, you know, big gaps and things like that, obviously. Anyway, so he does a sort of a rough cut. But the point is, if you're going to do it that way, you probably want to articulate this is how we operate and you know, here's what we expect from each other. You probably want to have something in your contract that protects you against the host, including something in the show that they shouldn't have or asking you to include something for them that they shouldn't and vice versa. You know, you got to protect them or it's called indemnification, right? The indemnity, the hold harmless clause against any mistakes that you might make that cause them problems. So it's a two-way street. I think this is one of those areas where the playing field's pretty level and it's, it's reasonable for everybody to expect each other to look out for themselves and, and each other. So other than that, I, the, the payment terms can be a pretty significant issue. If you're expecting to be paid immediately on delivery of your episodes and they don't pay, what do you do? You know, so choice of forum, where do you go to court if you have to go to court, all those kinds of things. It's contract boilerplate. There's nothing particularly magical about this kind of contract. Maybe it doesn't seem magical to you, but to me, it seems quite <laughs> magical. It seems a bit like a dark art. And so that's why some of these questions about, you know, like what kinds of things should be included. You mentioned that there need to be some indemnifications in there for maybe things 
being included that shouldn't or that kind of thing. What are some of those maybe watch out type things? Well, you know, that actually the indemnification is basically saying, look, if I don't keep my promises to you, I'm going to make you whole if it costs you money or liability. So it's really about what are you promising? Promises are usually called representations and warranties in the contract. So you want to make sure <laughs> the dark art. I love it. I need a wizard's hat and robe. <laughs> the warranties and representations should be, you know, promises about what the content is going to include and not include, that it's not going to infringe people's copyrights, that it's original work with whoever's creating the work. Now, you guys as editors, you're working with somebody else's material, so it's really incumbent on them to make sure it's original and not infringing and that they don't say something that defames another person or invades somebody's privacy or you know, causes them some kind of harm, reveals private information. As editors, you guys should try to listen for that stuff and make sure you know you understand the law around these areas, but don't promise that you're going to do that for them, that you're going to make sure they don't infringe. Hmm. You don't want your podcaster getting sued and say, well, my editor should have known to cut that out. You shouldn't be content editor. You should be technical quality kind of well and, and maybe you are a content editor if that's the case say so and, and be prepared right i think it takes it to a little bit about hmm, sentences words <sighs> did i miss something <laughs> i'm saying you shouldn't be editing to change the content of the messages that are being said i mean if a guest says something and says oh i shouldn't have said that of course you're going to cut that out but right. you're not going to change the meaning of the sentences they said right and your hosts shouldn't expect you to do that. I would say that's dishonest. Yeah. <laughs> so transparently, every time I hear from you or every time I talk to you, I get more and more nervous about my contracts. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> then I'm doing my job. You're going to have to hire yeah, me to you, fix you it did. for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Actually, that is no, how no. lawyers are taught to market, you know, scare them so they have to hire you. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but that's not my intention here. I do want to shed some light on these things. So, Yeah. Content editing. Heather has a question. Is that more than editing crutch words? Frankenstein editing? I think what I was referring to is more of the Frankenstein kind of stuff. If you're just mm -hmm. editing crutch words or pauses and the you knows and the ums that I use a lot, <laughs> I don't think you're changing the meaning. You might be changing the impression that the audience gets of the person. But you have to be really mindful. You know, look, you have a lot of power in your hands to take someone's words mm. and change the cadence of what they're saying or change the, maybe not even the sequence, but, you know, you can make somebody come off like a fool or you can make a, a foolish person come off like a genius in yes. the way you edit their stuff. And so mm -hmm. I think that, you know, while you want to do what you can to be flattering, you also don't want to cross a line where you're deceiving the audience because then the audience might be upset with the podcaster and that's your client. You have to serve your clients and their audiences at the same time. So to kind of maybe ask a little bit deeper on that, right? So my goal is always to make everybody sound as good as they possibly can. Okay. I do my best not to change content, but I absolutely remove crutch words and repeated phrases and sometimes very rarely circuitous parts of answers. I'll realign audio so that you can actually hear when they were talking over each other, you can hear that stuff. Assuming there is a line, where is that line? I don't know that there is a clear line. I mean, I think that's something that you guys have to use your judgment about. And I guess what you want to do with your contracts and with your relationships with your clients is, is set the boundaries for how far you're willing to go, what they're expecting mm -hmm. of you. You know, I mean, let's face it. If I want to do a show where I do a takedown of someone and I invite them on as a guest and I interview them, I could theoretically instruct my editor, hey, let's make this guy sound worse than he is. Maybe it wouldn't go that far, but we're going to emphasize 
you know, the dirty tricks or whatever this person's talking about. And the deep fake thing is, is an issue these days. Yeah. I guess if you're going to be doing that kind of work, if you're asked to do that kind of work, maybe your contract needs to specify that they're going to indemnify <laughs> you and hold you harmless against that, even though you're the one who's doing the editing and you're doing it at their instruction, right? It's still okay. I mean, I guess, look, if they're willing to pay you to do it, maybe you want to do it. That's a moral philosophical discussion. Where's that line? That's for you to decide. Wow. Thanks for the help. <laughs> well, draw the line and then put it in the contract. That's the point. Decide what you're, yeah. how far you're willing to go and what, what the boundaries for you are and be transparent about that with your clients. So Carrie has a question. goes back to what you mentioned earlier. If the client decides not to pay, who owns the edited audio? Well, interestingly, it isn't really about whether you get paid or not. The, the money changing hands doesn't affect the ownership of the, we're going to talk about the copyright in the work. Okay. The basic rule is that when people get together to work on something together, they own it jointly. When, if I sit down and record something by myself, I own that recording. But then if I give you the material and ask you to edit it, that editorial output, I think belongs to you unless we have a contract that says otherwise. But if we have that contract that says otherwise, and I don't pay you, I still own what the contract says. You just have a right to sue me for the money. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, until the contract is actually rendered void, and that kind of a breach of contract generally doesn't just end the contract and treat it as if it didn't exist. The sequence of things matters, I guess you could say. So, until the contract is terminated, its provisions still govern. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. I think so. And maybe just to kind of peel back the curtain, the way I've got it written in mine is that I own the edited content until they pay. And that's actually in the contract. Yeah. I mean, I think that's certainly a clear expression of your intent. I'm not sure that <laughs> from a legal standpoint, it works that way. <laughs> the copyright law is written the way it's written. And unfortunately, I think you're probably okay. I'm going to say no more about that because you're not going to encounter people who are going to have the legal guns to challenge it. <laughs> We should probably also pause here to say that we've asked Gordon on as an expert, but he's not actually our attorney in this situation, so he's not actually able to give us this kind of advice. So you know, we don't want to put him in a bad situation either. Let's face it. If you're getting your legal advice from a forum like this, you're getting what you're paying for. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's worth exactly what you pay. No, I mean, you really shouldn't rely on this kind of thing or really anything you find online and even my own materials. I do offer a lot of advice and I am an expert in this field, but I'm not your lawyer unless you hire me as your lawyer. And so you really shouldn't take your advice exclusively from Facebook forums and internets and internet. Yeah. So when you mention copyright, that takes my mind to trademarking as well. And I see on your screen, the podcast lawyer, TM. So you are claiming that. Are you in the process of registering that as well? I have not actually filed a registration for that. And the reason is that in order to be registrable as a trademark, the mark itself has to be distinctive, not descriptive or generic. And the podcast lawyer is pretty darn descriptive, isn't it? So my reason for putting TM, and actually, technically, it probably should be SM for service mark because I offer services. But the reason I put the TM there is to sort of put the world on notice that I am working in the direction of building, of becoming a distinctive phrase to identify me. There's this notion of something called acquired distinctiveness from a secondary meaning. So when the public starts to connect pay less shoes with a particular store or chain mm -hmm. of stores, they know that's coming from that particular store. Now pay less is no longer a descriptive term. It's a 
secondarily descriptive or distinctive term. That's why I'm using TM and putting it out there as much as I can so that a year from now I can register it, claim that distinctiveness. So I'm bourbon barrel podcasting and trying to set myself up as an expert in Lexington, Kentucky and have working with a gal Mm -hmm. to start exploring that of being a trademark. What are the benefits to doing that? I mean, other than having a little R by my name and make myself really, really cool, you know? It gives you the ammunition to use if somebody else comes along and starts bourbon barrel audio or bourbon valley recording services or editing and whatever. You know, you can say, no, that's too close. That's in the same category of services that I'm in. And we can't have that kind of confusion in the marketplace. So it gives you the ammunition to stop them. That's the primary reason. And, you know, frankly, putting the world on notice in the public registry of it's called the Gazette of the Copyright Office, excuse me, of the Trademark Office. Anybody who's going to run a search is going to find that information, and you're supposed to run a search before you adopt a brand. Right. I would recommend it. Also, that's the bourbon barrel podcasting. Is that what you said? Bourbon barrels have nothing to do with podcasting, so that mark would be distinctive. It's fanciful, even if you're podcasting about the bourbon business. So I think you got a a good one there. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) But don't take your legal advice from (laughs) now. So as far as like protecting yourself, I know a question that comes up a lot when it comes to podcast editors is whether or not they should register as an LLC or like a business entity or be a sole proprietor or whatnot. So can you give a clarification between like what that is and what kind of consideration you should take before making that decision? Sure. So forming an entity, you know, which is essentially a separate person in the eyes of the law. Bottom line is if you don't form anything, if you don't do anything, you're a sole proprietorship and you and your business stuff are intermixed and all one blob there in the eyes of the law. If you form a partnership with one other person and you just start up without doing any government filings or anything like that, same thing. The two partners are equally and jointly liable for everything that happens in their business. So the idea behind forming a corporation or a limited liability company, these are just two flavors of these other kinds of entities is to insulate the owners, that's you guys, from the business risks and liabilities, essentially. So you're running it as a separate business. Keeping things separate is the way you avoid having someone end up owning your house or your pension plan because you you uh, you know had a mistake that happened in the business. So yeah, it's just isolating the risks and rewards from things. And I think it's just smart and good business if the cost-benefit you know analysis makes sense. I was on a panel with PodFest last week, and one of the other lawyers said, you absolutely always form an LLC. And I said, well, you know, here in California, the taxes on an LLC can be really burdensome. And this lawyer didn't know that it's $800 minimum, and it steps up, and it's tied to gross receipts, not net. So you could have a business that generates millions of dollars in revenue and has millions of dollars in costs and almost no net profit, and you'd still be paying big taxes based on that gross. So so there are some situations where it probably doesn't make sense, but I think for most businesses, most editors or you know service providers, it makes sense to keep that stuff separate and, and it's worth, you know, a couple hundred bucks a year in added costs and hassles to do. And the, you know, the startup cost of forming it is a little more than that, but it's one time cost. So and always keep your finances separate. <laughs> I would say even if you're not forming an entity, have yeah. a separate bank account for the business stuff just so you can track it. You're stopping a jack-in-the-box <laughs> on the way home from dropping the kids off at school. That's not going to show up as a business expense. The IRS does not like that. <laughs> Why are you charging us for hash browns? <laughs> if you think about work while you're doing it, is that a business meal? 
<laughs> oh, wow. This is going south fast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Do not do that. Do not do that. Consult your accountant. Right. But actually, so what you just mentioned, Gordon, kind of piqued my interest, though, because from time to time I'll hear people say, well, if you're thinking about forming an entity like an LLC, talk to your tax advisor. Yeah. Should we talk to a tax advisor, an attorney? Like, who should we actually talk to? Both. I mean, there are tax consequences to forming entities. And frankly, there are tax reasons why forming an entity can be very positive. If you are in a fairly high tax bracket, for example, keeping your money in the business where it's taxed at the corporate tax level could be beneficial. Whereas if you're in a lower bracket, it may not make sense and you may be spending money you shouldn't. Sort of depends. But if you, I think if you're running it as a business, and for editors, I think you are running a business, it makes sense. You know, For the amateur podcaster who's just doing it as a hobby, having fun, maybe making a few bucks from ad sales or something like that, that's where I start to say, well, does it really make sense? Just run it through your personal taxes. But for you guys with multiple clients and stuff, it makes a lot of sense to form that entity. And you just want to know what, what you're going to have to do at tax time because that is an additional expense is either preparing or paying for someone to prepare the tax return for the business. Yeah. And I think I know for both Daniel and I, we're in Tennessee. And so there's I looked into it. I'm not set up as an LLC. Daniel is, if I remember right. And it's mm-hmm. not as expensive as California, but it's not free. That is a consideration for me where this is my side business. Mm-hmm. And so part of me is going, how much do I want to invest to set that up? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the cost of doing business, that's a factor. Absolutely. And as you say, it's a side hustle. When it gets big enough to take over, maybe that's when you think about it. I will say one thing. If you're going to form an entity, earlier is better because at some point you're transferring assets and you're having to do a lot of paperwork to move things into the company. Whereas if you're starting up, you know everything is under the company umbrella once it's in existence. So if you're thinking about it, I'd, I'd say do it unless it really doesn't make financial sense. So when I went to start my LLC, basically I went to the Secretary of State website mm. for the state of Kentucky, and that's where I started. What is that the right way to do it? <laughs> Probably not. It's one right way to do it. I mean, there's a multitude of right ways. There are service providers out there. I mean, look, you can hire a lawyer like me. I'm going to charge you a fair bit to do it. What I do is I turn over a really turnkey operation with a list of here's what you do next and sign here and check this and mail this to so-and-so. And, you know, it's all sort of laid out in one fell swoop. Uh, when you do the Secretary of State approach, you then had to go to the IRS website and get a tax ID number. And then you had to file this paper. And then you had to follow up with that and write the operating agreement yourself, you know, those kinds of things. You could use a, I'm going to call them the online vending machine model, <laughs> you know, companies with <laughs> words like Rocket and Zoom in their names. <laughs> I kind of liken it to getting a haircut from a vending machine. You know, you might come out looking good. You might come out missing mm-hmm. an ear. I get hired to fix people's stuff that they didn't get right. Because you, know, you don't know what how to answer the question on the form, right? You might need some right. guidance there. And they don't have anybody to give you that guidance. So... And you look, most of us are smart people and we can read the instructions and think about it. If we don't know, we're not going to check the wrong box and just say, oh, well, it'll work, (laughs) you know, but (laughs) that does happen. And so I would say there are corporations, startup companies that specialize in that. I'd I'd like those better than the generic vending machine ones. I'm not going to name names, but I have the ones I prefer. (laughs) And in fact, I actually use one when I do a corporation, I have a they they custom they what's the word I'm looking for? they serve lawyers specifically and they provide about half of the steps you know sort of an organized fashion that makes it easier for us to do our part and some of those also have a client facing side as well if somebody was wanting to 
talk to you about this. Do you only do corporations in California? Or are you able to do nationwide? Like, what's your... I can do them anywhere in the country, actually anywhere in the world. Like I said, I use these services that do have people that I can talk to in the various states. If I, need, if I have questions or I need to have something that's specific to, say, Nebraska, they make it possible for me to associate with somebody in Nebraska. So yeah, we lawyers are able to cross state lines to a certain extent about that kind of stuff. I like to say, as long as the show or the client has some nexus to California where I practice, and let's face it, this is entertainment. There's an entertainment industry. It happens to be in California. I think that's enough of a nexus to let me do this kind of work there. So we had a question come up from Heather Wester. She asked, can you provide a scenario where I would want to register as LLC over sole proprietorship? Sure. You're doing business. I mean, that's the scenario. <laughs> I'm sorry, I mean, we sort of went over this already, but the idea is, look, as a sole proprietorship, if something happens in the business, let's say you make a big mistake and a guest is embarrassed and sues the podcaster and the podcaster sues you and wins, well, now you've got to pay that judgment and maybe you have the cash in the bank to just pay it or maybe you don't. If you don't, what happens is that podcaster or that uh, podcaster or the guest lawyer comes looking for your assets and they'll start with asking you questions like give me a list of all your bank accounts who holds the mortgage on your house and you can see where that's going right they're going to end up putting a lien on your house until you pay off this judgment if you have an entity only what the entity owns is exposed to that liability so yeah you might end up having you're editing a lien on your mac or something like that and what's in the bank accounts but it's much less putting your personal finances at risk so that's the big reason for doing it and really just keeping things separate and having the business be the party to the contract rather than you, the individual. So if there's a breach of contract, they're looking to the business and, you know, your business insurance might pay, but you're not going to have to reach into your own uh, personal bank account necessarily. That's the big scenario, I would say. We also had a question about what kinds of documentation would be needed. So like if you're wanting to form an LLC, what kinds of things do you need to have prepared or is there even any value in having stuff prepared? You don't really need much. I mean, to form a company, you're telling the government of whatever state, here I am, here's the name of the company I'm going to operate, here's how much money I'm putting into the business to start up, which, you know, usually just a few thousand bucks of capitalization, and here's our address and here's who to reach if you need to reach us, you know, the agent for service of process. The initial filing with the state is one page long for either a corporation mm -hmm. or an LLC. In California, it's actually an online form nowadays. In many states, it's an online form. You fill it out, you pay the little fee, and you know, a week goes by and you get a certificate. Great, now you're a company. What you need then is the, for an LLC, it's called an operating agreement. In a corporation, it's called the bylaws. And this is the constitution, the rules that the company operates under. Then you need a tax ID number and you need to open your bank accounts, but, and then you need contracts with your vendors and your clients. It isn't a giant rocket science kind of a thing. Now, if you're getting into a situation where you have multiple owners and you've got maybe investors and things like that, it gets more complicated. That's another one of the nice things about the LLC or corporation structures is it gives you the flexibility to do that. If you need to bring in investors to fund your operations, you can. And you use the mm -hmm. you sell shares or membership interests in the company. That's not going to come up for most small business owners, but it can happen. Yeah. And if you're in business with another partner or partners, using the LLC to define that relationship and what happens if things go wrong or somebody decides to leave, 
that's all built into the operating agreement as well. You know, how do you buy somebody out? How do they buy you out? Those kinds of things. Hmm. If you are getting into business with another person, whether you're related to that person or not, I've seen husband and wives have this situation too. The LLC operates a little bit like a prenuptial agreement. If I'm purchasing from your website and utilizing your service, does this make you my lawyer? Great question. No. (laughs) (laughs) Just like if you go to the library and buy a book by a lawyer, borrow a book by a lawyer and read it and do what they say, you didn't hire the lawyer. You read what they had to say. Look, I want you to rely to a certain extent on what I say and do, but I don't want you to rely in a way that hurts you. So sometimes what I end up saying is, you know, this is the general rule. If you have a special situation, you need to get a lawyer. I'll give you the vanilla ice cream. If you want a special kind of sundae or a banana split, hire someone to make it for you. Working with clients, most of my clients are U.S.-based. Yeah. And occasionally they will have guests that are overseas and might be covered under something like GDPR. Yeah. What are the kinds of things that we would need to have in place or think about as editors? Wow. Actually, not much as editors. You know, the GDPR is a privacy protection rule in the European Union. I have my doubts about whether or not a recording of a person's voice is subject to the GDPR. Well, the basic rules is with GDPR is if you're get, collecting personally identifiable information about a subject, somebody who lives in the EU, you're supposed to be able to tell them what you're collecting, why you're collecting it, what you're going to do with it, who else you're going to share it with, and you're supposed to give them a right to modify or delete that information. I don't think that the words that a person says in a recorded conversation necessarily falls into that personally identifiable information, except that if that person tells you their email address or their, where they live or something, you know, very sort of private and they ask you to take it out, I think that if they're a GDPR subject, I think you have to sort of abide by that in order to avoid this problem. Really just using good judgment. But as editors, I don't think you have to be affirmatively on the lookout for that stuff. That's the podcaster's responsibility. And the guest will reach out to the podcaster. They don't even know who you are in most instances. So no need for like a data processing agreement or anything? If you are doing regular business with a podcaster who's in Europe and they're sharing information across international boundaries, then yes, it's incumbent on them to have data processing agreement. You become a, oh, there's a name for it, but I think it's a data processing provider. And yeah, you would have to abide by the terms of that agreement that they would need from you. But again, I don't think it's incumbent on you as an American podcast editor to be proactive about that unless you're seeking out that business on a large scale. Wow. Thank you. I mean, you know, <laughs> be careful about people's private stuff. One of the other things that I think has been a hot topic this year has been the California privacy law and then also some recent changes to the Children's Online Privacy Act, or at least the application as I understand it. Do we as editors need to concern ourselves with that? I would say the same answer to as what I said before is you want to be mindful, you want to be aware of it, but again, you are not the end user and producer of this content. California privacy, I don't see how it would come up very much. I mean, you're not the one who's running a website collecting somebody's email address or something like that. I mean, if you are, then you have to think about it. That's more likely to be for your own business than for your clients, right? Unless you're mm-hmm. a, a broader kind of service agency providing a big raft of services, in which case, yeah, you got to get some advice and, and figure this stuff out. But no, just as editors, I wouldn't make a, a big point of concern. That's very relieving because that's something that I've felt is something that I needed to get tied up. It's been a revenue play, right? Because you've always got to go that risk revenue. 
interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I know, maybe there's something I'm missing about the editing business, but I don't think you're collecting a lot of personal information from people. No. I collect as little as possible. I mean, <laughs> you've got the name and maybe an email address and a, a phone number or how to contact the person that's just coming across because you're at the same time as you're editing and you're consuming that audio, right? But you're not in the business of storing and archiving that kind of information, except within the content of the episode. Are there any things that you would expect to see editors missing on a sort of a common basis in terms of any legal exposure? Well, I think most of you folks are pretty astute about this stuff, but copyright in material that you're incorporating into the show. Music is an obvious one. I'm sure we're going to talk about music, but let's talk about like sound effects, right? If you're as part of your editing package of services, you're going to introduce little bumpers and tags and that kind of stuff. You know, someone owns a copyright in that recording. And so you do need to think about it. Now that piece happens to be licensed as part of the broadcaster package and whatever else. But if you're using sound effects that you go out and find on the web, you got to know that what you're doing is okay by the license terms. Most of the time when you purchase a sound effect, it's for one-time use for one particular project or something like that. This is an issue that I'm seeing a lot with some of the music libraries. Is there people are using it as the intro for their show when the license actually says one-time use? So you're supposed to pay for that for every new episode. Yeah, whenever I see somebody mention like Audio Jungle, it's like it's only twenty dollars. Well, it's twenty dollars for a one-time use, but you need to pay like eighty to a hundred to get that unlimited download license. If they even offer it, some clips and some they don't. So the same is true for snippets, audio bumpers, and taglines, and what do you call mm-hmm. them? Production elements. So if you're doing that kind of stuff, make sure the library you have allows you to do it not just for your own stuff, but for third-party product as well. Because, you know, when you're doing it for someone else, now it's a commercial venture kind of thing. Other things that commonly missed in this space, I would say it's mostly going to do with those elements that end up getting heard by the audience. I think maybe there's a little further to go with that copyright thing. And it was one of the things that we had planned to talk about. We talked about being sure that elements that we provide for our clients, assuming that we do that, that's not actually something that I do. But how concerned do we need to be about elements that they send us, whether it's a pre-produced intro or a sound effect or the snippet from TV, like, right? Uh. That's back to the contract between you and your client. That should be something that's in there is, you know, you, the client promise and warrant and represent that all of the content you send us for inclusion in your show is properly licensed that you control or have acquired, you know, the rights to use that material. And you promised to indemnify and hold me, the editor, harmless against any breaches of that warranty. Well, it's your protection. One thing I should say about indemnity, an indemnification is a nice thing to have in a contract, but it's really only as good or as useful as the financial backing of the person who's giving it. So asking an 18-year-old <laughs> college kid to indemnify you for something that they say that hurts somebody's feelings or causes them, you know, whatever, is only, you know, if that kid's got money in the bank, great. But if not, you're still on the hook. Insurance is another thing I think needs to be a part of the conversation is someone should be carrying liability insurance, errors and omissions insurance, if the show is the kind of thing that's going to be risky. If it's just an interview show, there may not be a lot of risk. And on that, maybe the insurance shouldn't cost very much either. So it's worth thinking about. Asking them if they have insurance and if they Hmm. do to name you as an additional insured is probably a good idea. Went down a, a little bit of a path there. So back to your question, Brian. 
the material they send you. Yeah, they should be promising that they own or control or have the right to use it. And what if they ask you if it's okay? You shouldn't be in the business of giving other people <laughs> legal advice. You tell me, do you have a contract that says you can use it? Do you have some basis for wanting to use it? And look, there's a lot of the fair use discussion out there. People think, well... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that just because it's a fun topic to talk about. Oh, yeah, it's so much fun. <laughs> well, look, if they say, I think it's fair use, unless you really know it's not, I think you can reasonably rely on their promise that, you know, again, they have the right or the good faith belief that they have the right to use it. You don't have to be second guessing them as long as they're legit, you know, saying it. But if they come and ask you, hey, do you think I can use this stuff? I think you got to say, hey, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> Talk to Gordon. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but they need to make these decisions for themselves. Otherwise, yeah, you do put yourself in a position of liability for giving that kind of advice or recommendation. I mean, obviously, you know, you want to be helpful, but at the same time, you don't want to put yourself at risk. So a comment from Heather, mm. uh, she said, always reach out for specific license information. Each license is different, reflecting on my recent experience with Audio Jungle. My question with that is, should we be doing that or should it just be like in our contract says like the client promises to have permission and does asking for that license kind of make us liable? I don't think it makes you liable. It does open up the conversation. Ultimately, I think it's incumbent on the, the client to provide you with properly licensed content. I mean, you need to just say that. I don't think you need to see the license or read it or draw your own conclusions about it. And I think the less you engage in that, probably the better. But then for material you're using, if you go out and grab something, you've got to assure them what you're incorporating is legal and legit. I guess the answer is yes. I had a former client now who wanted to use licensed material in every single episode. They were going to change the closing song every single time. And I was like, I, I'm sorry, I'm not working on this. Mm -hmm. Good luck with that. But I'm not going to put myself in that position. Right. I mean, technically, yeah, you could have been liable for part of that infringement. And, you know, the worst thing that could happen is have a lot of finger pointing and having to defend yourself, even if you're not responsible for it. It's a colossal expense and, and hassle and headache. So that seems like that was the right choice just to say, you know, I'm not going to do that. Find someone else. If they come and say, we got the rights or we don't need the rights because it's fair use. Again, unless you're really sure it's not, you're probably okay. No, they weren't even fair use. <laughs> I mean, it's different if they're doing a show about great guitar licks and they play a clip of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Okay, that's relevant. That's relevant. And it's a critique commentary about the thing. That's more likely to be, again, I don't want to get into legal advice about what fair use is. <laughs> sure. We can talk about the four factors and how you do the analysis, but ultimately you have to do it on each individual alleged infringement. So these kinds of infringements, if there was something that did happen to come up, mm. like is this something that would be covered by the errors and omissions insurance type thing that you discussed? Yeah, that's what errors and omissions insurance is, is exactly that. It's designed to cover the podcaster and anybody else named on the policy against their own mistakes and failure to do what they're supposed to do. Again, unless it's an intentional act, insurance generally doesn't cover you for intentional stuff. Imagine that. <laughs> so knowing using a piece of music when you know it's not fair use, that arguably could be deemed an intentional infringement, but I think most of the time they defend the case and you know, there's a colorable claim in many of these situations. So for those of us that are hearing about errors and omissions insurance, but maybe don't have it yet, are there... That's going to be 99.9%. 9 
Well, it's at least 25% of the people on the screen right now. I don't know about everybody else, but... Probably 75. Like, is this something that we could get at a, just any insurance company? Is it... Okay, so... The reason I said it's such a giant percentage of people who don't have it is that it's very hard to find. And the insurance companies Mm. haven't been very interested in doing policies for podcasts. You know, look, if you're Spotify, they're writing policies to cover that kind of stuff because they're producing tons of content. Likewise, NPR, you know, the big podcast outfits are doing it. I honestly don't know. I mean, I I know one Mm. broker who sort of talks about it, but I don't know what the policy, you know, premiums and limits are like. I'm actually sort of trying to talk to other brokers and carriers about this to try to find the solution. But so far, they don't, all, they don't seem to be that interested. And so right now, it's a nice idea. It's hard to implement. Yeah. That might be something that you guys as a community could wield some power. And if you're interested, go to the insurance community and say, this is something we all need. What can we do? Should the editors have it or should the podcasters have it or both? I think both. I think if you have your own policy, it can be secondary to the podcast producer's insurance, but it probably does make sense just to you know, have that protection in case you do get sued. That's really what it's about is if you get sued, who's going to pay the lawyers? I'm kind of stuck still on this Arizona missions thing. So I <laughs> look, I'm going to be honest. I thought you were saying Arizona missions. <laughs> yes, Father Sarah has a big role in podcasting. There you go. <laughs> the reason is because I've done a couple of searches, and typically when I search for errors and emissions, I'll find one of those insurance companies like Next or somebody else that has a nice big landing page, but when I go to get the insurance, it appears to be basically just business insurance. There are different flavors of E&O. So if you're going to Google it, add the word media into the search narrow your field a lot. I think there's one company called Hiscox, I think, that does write some policies like this. And I'm I'm pretty sure that Chubb and Fireman's Fund and you know the big name insurance companies will do it if the broker puts it to them the right way. It's really is it profitable for brokers to do it? I don't think the business model's there yet. Because I have business insurance, but I don't even know what it covers. <laughs> H I S C O X, something like that. Or maybe C O C K. Okay. For those that don't know, we've got a chat stream going backstage, and I'm asking how to spell it. (laughs) It's interesting, because I did actually talk to one of the lawyers at Pandora a couple months ago. It was right after the pandemic started keeping us all at home, and the conversation was around, is this even something that exists, and is it possible? And and the thinking was that the big companies were going to be requiring it. If you're going to have your show acquired or hosted on one of these big platforms, It may be coming. It's just sort of something to keep an eye on, I guess is what I'm saying. So Gordon, the podcast lawyer, how can you help us? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for the person listening, I have your book on the shelf. I've read through that. I need to probably read through it again. But what other ways do you help podcasters? I sort of offer a multi-level approach. So, you know, look, I have a free podcast guest release. If a podcaster is bringing guests on their show, they should have a written document with each of those guests. It can be an online form, but the point being that guest needs to be given consent to be recorded and what the scope of that consent covers, you know, that you can use it in these ways in this territory around for this long a period of time. I like to say all media now known hereafter devised throughout the universe in perpetuity. But some guests may object to that or whatever. And that they're not getting paid, or if they are, then it needs to specify how much they're getting paid. And that they promise not to sue you for anything related to the podcast or their, their appearance on your show. That's offered for free. It's at podcastrelease.com. 
then I do offer the ebook, which is podcastlawbook.com. And then the forms. I have a bunch of legal templates and forms and things like that for special needs, special situations that might come up, the podcast prenup, the co-host agreements, things like that, an independent contractor agreement to use with your vendors, all those kinds of things. Those are available on the website at podcastlawforms.com. All of this is on the gordonfiremark.com site. That's available as a bundle or a la carte forms. And then I also have the podcasters legal and business boot camp. It's been a Saturday morning, three to four hour live session where I sort of walk people through forming their company, doing their trademark, getting their copyrights registered, what to watch out for, advertiser agreements, all that kind of stuff. That one's going to be offered again. This time it's going to be as an online course. So you can do it at your own pace uh, starting in mid-September. So come on over to gordonfiremark.com. And uh, give me your email address and I'll tell you about that when the time comes. Get the free release and that'll put you on the mailing list. That's the best way. (laughs) And you have a podcast as well, you mentioned. So what's your podcast? Oh, entertainmentlawupdate.com. That's where I talk to other lawyers and students and professionals in the entertainment industry about cases and things that are going on in the entertainment business. And uh, my co-host and I have a great time. Once a month, we do that show. A lot of fun. And if you haven't been taking notes, we're going to make sure all those links can be found in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> GordonFindMark.com yeah. and everything else is on that page. There you go. And you can also find all the information we talked about on this episode at PodcastEditorsMastermind.com. Daniel, since you mentioned PodcastEditorsMastermind.com, why don't you tell people how they can be a guest? <laughs> all you got to do is go to PodcastEditorsMastermind.com and there is a button at the top of the page that says Be a Guest. Fill out the form, and then we'll contact you. Simple as that. And we don't only talk about talk to experts about podcasting. You know, this mastermind is designed to help people and help you get over your struggles, get over your hurdles. So if you are a podcast editor who is struggling with business side of things or just kind of anything that we can help with, come on the show, and then we can just kind of workshop and help you figure out what you're struggling with. And if you're interested in being in a mastermind, let us know that. We'll connect you with some folks. We're starting to put some pieces together. I know in the Just Busters female podcast editor group, we're starting to form masterminds. So if this is something you'd want to be a part of in general, let us know. We'll we'll connect you with some other people that you could do a chat ongoing chat with throughout the day where if you blink you've missed 200 messages that's our little group <laughs> well gordon thank you so much again uh, heather says so much good stuff this episode went by too quickly thanks everyone thank you heather for being here with us thanks it's been a lot of fun i've been looking forward to it all week awesome well, I'm Jennifer Longworth with Bourbon Barrel Podcasting, bourbonbarrelpodcasting.com. You can find me on social media at KY Podcasting. I'm Brian Ensminger. You can find me at toptieraudio.com, and all the links are there. I'm Daniel Abendroth, and you can find me at rothmedia.audio. And Carrie Caulfield Eric has been our chat mod, and she is at yayapodcasting.com. And our guest again? GordonFireMark.com. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to seeing you again in a couple weeks. Bye. Uh, um, so, how much is that? Um. 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 Um.